It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is a Manhattan-bound B-Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hello, I'm John Elledge, and this is Skylines, the Cinemetric Podcast. Actually, technically, that was the, the Standard Express. Uh, this is, this is going to be one of those guest episodes, you see. Uh, I'm going to be... Uh, I've been on holiday, and then, you know, I don't know if you've noticed the, the, the ongoing uh, cluster fudge that is British politics at the moment, but so I've been a little bit busy, so I'm a bit behind with my podcasting. So we're going to do a guest episode, uh, a very a very topical guest episode. In fact, this is from uh, City Talks, which is the podcast of our friends at the Centre for Cities. It's from last December, and it's all about Brexit and how Brexit will affect, will affect cities. Um, so this is going to be it from me, this little introduction here. This is all you're going to get. Uh, I might stick the theme music on the back end. Just, just so you know what you've been listening to, or I might not. Who knows? Uh, but just, just I thought I'd tell you what was going on and to give you a little bit of colour. That that sound at the beginning was a, a train going past my flat because uh, I live by the railway line now. It's very, very on brand. Um, so, so yeah, just a little, a little insight into my my private world there, which is exactly what you think it is, really. So. <sighs> Brexit. Anyway, here's City Talks. Welcome to City Talks, a monthly podcast looking at the big issues facing UK cities and the latest thinking on urban policy. I'm your host, Andrew Carter, from the think tank Centre for Cities. I hope you enjoy the episode. My guests today are Paul Swinney and Naomi Clayton, colleagues of mine at the Centre for Cities. And today we're going to be talking about Brexit and its potential or likely impact on cities across the UK. So the context is, over the last week or so, a flurry of assessments of various Brexit deals have been released looking at the different impacts on the economy. Only the government study looked at the geography of the different deals and how they might affect different areas, which I think is interesting in itself and somewhat revealing about how we think about the economy. But Naomi, just start by giving us an, an, an overview of, you know, if you looked at all of those studies and the various assessments, what are the kind of big stories or big headlines that they're all telling us? We had four impact studies uh, published last week, um, and each of them were looking at 
slightly different scenarios, but all of them looked at the impacts of uh, a Canada-style free trade agreement um, and uh, the, the likely uh, impacts of that relative to if uh, the UK had stayed in the EU. Um, and, you know, essentially, um, the, the studies show that uh, uh, national income, GDP, uh, is likely to be around 2 to 6% lower than if the UK had stayed in the, um, in the EU. Um, and so, you know, on average, um, you know, they're, they're predicting that the economic um, output will be around 4%. Um, lower, and that equates to around, uh, you know, two thousand pounds per per person per year um, by 2030. We should say, for the purposes of those that are interested in this sort of stuff, all of the assessments are very clear that these are scenarios, or they're trying to paint pictures of. They're not accurate predictions of uh, actually what will happen uh, and the numbers, but actually just given a sense as to the kind of impacts that you're likely to see and the magnitude of them, depending upon different deals. Absolutely. Um, it's not an exact science. Um, the exact costs of Brexit are highly uncertain, and um, the, the models and, and impacts are um, uh, dependent on, you know, from these models are dependent on um, the assumptions that are made within them. Only the government's assessment uh, really looked at some of the geography of how this might play out differently across the country, which, as I said, I think is kind of revealing in the way that some of this assessment work gets thought about, or at least how the, the country works, is, I think is quite interesting. Just give us a sense as to what the, um, the government's assessment, when they looked at the regional breakdown or the regional profiling, uh, said about uh, which places would be more or less affected. Well, it really does vary according to uh, the scenario that they're considering. And so there are a number of different scenarios um, in uh, the government's impact uh, model. And essentially, it's dependent on the extent to which the, um, the deal uh, is, is focused on goods relative to services. Um, so, uh, for instance, if, if uh, the UK stays within um, the customs union and tariffs for, for goods remain at, at zero, then actually some of the regions that are, uh, are more heavily kind of specialised in uh, manufacturing and, and the export of goods um, uh, might be relatively less affected than places like London uh, that are more specialised in financial and business services. Um, that changes though if, if uh, there's a no deal and actually we see the costs of, of trade increasing across the board um, and you know uh, we then need to obviously take consideration of, of the extent to which um, regions are uh, dependent on trade with the EU. Um, and in, those, in that case, um, places like the North East that have um, a quite a close relationship um, in terms of, of, of exports with the EU might be relatively more effective. And that's, effective. And that's kind of reflecting the... Uh, I suppose the industrial and occupational structure of different places and the degree to which some are more reliant on or have more employment and activity in certain industries rather than others, right? 
Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and so, you know, our analysis on the, the trade effects of, of Brexit showed that in terms of the initial shocks of a change in the UK's trade relationships with the EU, um, that actually cities that are more specialised in the financial and business services are likely to be affected um, greater, at least initially. Yeah, and so the, the government's uh, study um, looks at some of the impacts at the regional scale, at the you know, at that, and looks at the you know the different regions across uh, the country, including Northern Ireland, obviously, and uh, Scotland and uh, and Wales. Um, whereas the work that we did uh, a while back actually went further than that and tried to at least get a handle on the effect that Brexit and different scenarios, hard and soft at, the, at that stage, would have on actually the cities that we particularly look at. So just say something about. You know what? Again, at the headline level, what we observed when we, you know, when we did that work with uh, our colleagues at the London School of Economics. Yeah. So we worked with the the Centre for Economic Performance at LSE um, to look at the potential impacts of both a, a soft Brexit, where the UK reaches a, a free trade agreement with the EU, and then um, where um, the UK fails to. Um, reach an agreement and the default is to trade under World Trade Organization rules. Um, and, and we were essentially applying um, CEP's uh, national model to the local level so that we could look at the potential impacts on, on cities. Mm. Um, and because, uh, in part, uh, the, the model predicts that the costs of doing trade will be more significantly increased um, on the services side. It's actually places like London, other cities in the greater southeast, um, uh, and and cities like uh, Edinburgh and, and Aberdeen that are likely to be hit hardest under both scenarios. You know, the interesting point there was that that was counterintuitive in some respects at the time because. You know, in the way in the way we would think about those sorts of cities, we would classically, traditionally regard them as being more successful cities, and they seem to be more exposed. Whereas, you know, there's quite a bit of analysis around the time and still around weaker places being those that are affected. Absolutely, and that's why it's so important to to emphasise that through that that modelling, we were looking at the initial um, effects of Brexit in terms of the the trade effects. So. We didn't look at the, the effects uh, in terms of migration, FDI, and then the knock-on impacts on, on productivity within that study. Yeah. Um, and we weren't considering how places um, might respond to some of those shocks either. And so the concern is that where um, it, you know, the, the model suggests that everywhere will be negatively affected under both scenarios and, and that um, economic output will be lower as, as a result. Um, the concern is that in, in cities uh, where uh, levels of unemployment and, and uh, uh, you know, are already um, high and uh, the economies are effectively still struggling with the impacts of the 2008 financial crisis, that actually even just a small um, shock might have uh, much bigger ramifications and those economies might find it much more difficult to adapt uh, to the changes brought about, about by Brexit. Yeah, so we'll, we'll come on to that sort of, as you say, the short and long term, but then 
you know, how we think places may respond and the degree to which, you know, the existing uh, perf economic performance geography that we see, how that kind of, that we think that might play out and how we might need to respond uh, to that. But just, just to kind of finish off on this, so some of the work, uh, some of the studies looked at, uh, they also rolled in questions and issues in relation to migration. Although obviously we don't have the immigration white paper, which we were due to have, but now looks to be, you know, as always, very close to Christmas that we may or may not get the government's uh, white paper on how uh, the immigration system may work in a post-Brexit um, context. But we also looked at migration and looked at, again, how that played out across different cities. Give us some of the headlines on, on that so we can kind of roll that into, the, into the, uh, our, our considerations as well. Well, our analysis shows that some of the, the trade effects of, of Brexit may well be compounded by uh, changes in migration. And so we know um, that uh, migration is an incredibly important part of, of city economies um, and that most migrants will locate in uh, the UK's largest urban areas, particularly London. So, um, you know, migrants are, are really important to city economies, not just because that's where they tend to locate, but they also tend to be more highly skilled compared to the, the resident population. They tend to be younger and they're more likely to be in, in work. Um, and they work in a range of different industries. Um, so the concern is that, that Brexit may well lead to skill shortages um, in, in some of those kind of lower skilled or, or lower wage uh, sectors, as well as some of the, the high skilled, um, high wage uh, sectors and industries. Yeah, which then may have additional effects on the way that uh, internal labour markets function in, in the UK, which may exacerbate actually some of the problems that we already see, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, so that we, we've already seen that um, there's been a drop in migration to uh, cities um, since the, since the 2016 uh, referendum, um, and and of course, uh, you know, there are there are uh, significant consequences in terms of international migration, but we need to consider those in, against. Uh, the dynamics of domestic migration. So um, a lot of international migrants uh, locate in, in London. London um, uh, will undoubtedly be affected by changes to the immigration system in, in the UK, but it also might fill some of those, those skills shortages by drawing more people in from across the UK. Yeah, no, quite. I think, th I think that area has been underappreciated I think in in some respects about how you know some of that more skilled labor that currently chooses to stay in other cities may be drawn into London or into some of the more successful cities which might actually exacerbate um, geographical variation over over time as as those places be, you know lose the, some of the uh, the labor that they've been they've been able to retain or keep hold of which I think as I say is un, underappreciated okay so so let's Let's kind of broaden this out now to, uh, so we have these the assessments from the government, we've done our, our own work, thinking about how, you know, the impact of Brexit and how it plays out and how it informs and influences um, the longer term sort of economic geography that we see across the country. Paul, bring you in, so just, just paint a picture for us about you know, the pattern of economic performance that we've seen in some respects, some of our work going back 
over 100 years. So just give us a paint a picture of that and then we can talk about whether we think Brexit exacerbates or, uh, or might ameliorate some of those issues. Looking at the historic context of this, I think is really, really important because it helps answer what potentially is a very difficult question of what impact will Brexit have uh, across the country. Now, if we go back, say, to 1911, like we did in our Century of Cities work, um, what we see back then is that cities were very much places of low-cost production. You know, they were the cheapest places where you could go and, and, and set up your business and, and churn out whatever it is you churn out, chips, coal, etc. Why is that? Well, that's because you've got the coal under your, under your feet to pull out the ground, and you've got a fuel source, you're close to the sea because of rivers and ports, um, and you've got lots of workers you can access as well. Now, there's been quite big changes over the 20th century um, that have rendered those advantages that cities had to being sort of, you know, less advantageous. So um, you've got rail and road um, coming in, I mean, it's easy to move um, goods around. You've got containerization, meaning that ports became uh, less important or different types of ports became in, important. And you've got electricity as well, you know, those uh, businesses that were tied to cities because it had to be close to their fuel source, all of a sudden they could go and, and locate anywhere because you had the national grid coming into play. So what that's then meant is that um, cities have shifted from being places of low cost production to being places of knowledge production. Mm -hmm. So it's not cheap to operate within cities today. You know, businesses that have got business models which are based around you know, low cost aren't choosing to be located in cities. Instead, what we're seeing increasingly is that those high-skilled, high-knowledge businesses are the ones that want to be based within cities because of the advantage that cities offer. That's access to lots of, of skilled workers. And it's also access to a network of other, other businesses that they can share information with too. Now, that then means that those cities that successfully made that change over the last 100 years are the ones that do well today. You know, London is the most obvious example of that. But you've got places like, like Reading, Milton Keynes, um, Leeds, Edinburgh that have done that too. But of course, you've got a number of other cities that um, haven't adjusted particularly well. Places like Blackburn and Burnley or Middlesbrough or Wakefield, you know, have probably struggled to a greater extent mm. um, over that period. And we see now that their economies don't function very well. And we see, therefore, then the, the geography of, of opportunity, I think, that we see across the, the UK today in that some places do very well and some places don't. And it's all down to how they've been able to adapt to those, those changing global winds over the last century. Okay. Um, that's helpful. So, uh, where do we think Brexit leaves us or uh, how that will play out, Naomi, in terms of the, you know, the performance and the rationale um, that we've seen across our cities? You talked a little bit about early on, but just expand on that in terms of you know, if we're thinking about the, uh, the local effects of Brexit, does it make you know, the divisions more stark or might we see some of those divisions um, shrink as places like London you know, are, may, may well be hit? disproportionately hard, at least in the short run? Yeah, I think it's, it all comes back to um, uh, local economies and, and cities' ability to, to respond to these impacts. Um, and the concern is really that Brexit will, you know, uh, eventually kind of work to, to widen socioeconomic disparities across the country. I think it's useful to look back to uh, the 2008 financial crisis and uh, how local economies uh, responded to that. Mm. Um, you can see when, when you look back to, to 2008 uh, that, that London's economy was relatively hard hit initially um, in terms of the impact on particularly the financial uh, services sector. 
But since then, its economy has grown um, uh, significantly. It's seen among the fastest growth in the UK, uh, and its economy is now around 40% larger than it was in uh, 2008. Meanwhile, other cities that were relatively less affected initially um, uh, by the impacts of the financial crisis have seen much slower growth and, and have really struggled to recover mm. um, from the effects of the financial crisis. So I think that's a, a useful um, kind of uh, lesson for, for thinking about how cities might respond to some of the effects of, of Brexit and uh, uh, suggest that cities like London uh, and other much more kind of economically buoyant uh, cities with, with more diverse economies, more highly skilled workforces might well be better placed to respond to the, the impacts of, of Brexit while others might well struggle more. Paul? I think the question is, why would Brexit make these places that have perhaps struggled over the last 20, 30, 40 years, why would it make them more attractive as places of investment for high skilled businesses? And the answer to that is it won't. You know, there are much bigger fundamental challenges that these cities face that have to be uh, addressed. You know, either way, if we'd stayed, either way, if we'd stayed in the EU or if we'd left, you know, the July 2016 isn't a, uh, isn't a turning point in that factor. You know, it's these bigger fundamental challenges, particularly around skills, as Naomi says, that have to be addressed if we want to see um, places that are struggling perform better in the future. Now, it's quite interesting. You know, I think that the, the Brexit vote really is... a you know, a culmination of, of something where the seeds were sown probably in the 70s and 80s, where you've seen this, this fall away of perhaps more traditional industry, uh, and these cities have really struggled to adapt um, to be sort of more knowledge-based, to attract in these, these new higher skilled type businesses. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, particularly around domestic policy, is why are these businesses not locating within these localities currently, and what should we do about that to, to, to change it? And I don't think we've seen anything um, since the referendum result, that really has tried to, to address that. And indeed, actually, the great irony is, despite the Brexit vote, I think, being a, an alarm bell to show that you know, people are dissatisfied with the, with the opportunities that they see sort of in and around their areas, we haven't had really any proper and meaningful discussion about what domestic policy looks like to try and address that challenge that, that has been flagged up by the referendum result. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Yeah, so, I mean, so if it hasn't changed the, the, the response, the nature of the response, does it make the response more difficult? I suppose, no, I mean, in a sense that, you know, we know that places over time have suffered from, you know, fairly long run uh, problems on the skill side or on business investment side, some to varying degrees around questions about the physical infrastructure and connectivity of their place. I think some have struggled with kind of having good institutions in their places, you know, political and uh, civic and business uh, leaders that can make the decisions that support the long term success of those sorts of areas. I suppose, you know, my concern, if you share it, is all of those things are evident and need to be addressed and Brexit just makes it all the more difficult. Mm. Well, you know, a lot of the, the problems um, that, that, that cities face predate Brexit. Um, they're kind of long running. And I suppose Brexit makes addressing some of those challenges more difficult, in part because we're effectively having to do more with less. Um, you know, because the, the, the economic impacts of Brexit are going to affect government revenues um, and uh, affect government spending. So I think it's even more critical that uh, local government and, and their partners are taking stock of what works um, to improve uh, economic outcomes and, and really focusing on, on uh, trying to design and deliver the most effective policies to support their local economies. And, and you, just follow up on that. So you've been doing quite a lot of work um, going around the country, working with combined authorities, uh, with cities, with towns, you know, the, the whole kind of gamut, looking at and thinking about how they consider and reflect on questions in relation to the local industrial strategies. Because one of the main policy mechanisms the government has proposed to deal with some of the Brexit-related challenges is the national industrial strategy on the one hand and the local industrial strategies uh, as as part of that. And you've been around the country kind of talking to different places about how they think about those sorts of things. Just give us a sense as to where places are, you know, what some of the issues that are emerging. How, are, they, are they thinking differently than they maybe they did in, in the past? Has there been a, a change in the way they they at least un- try to understand the nature of their place? Yeah, so, you know, the, the industrial strategy is, is the government's flagship domestic policy um, aiming to uh, support productivity growth across the country. And as part of that, all uh, um, local enterprise partnerships and combined authorities are expected to agree local industrial strategies by early 2020. And these are really meant to focus on um, prioritising the long-term opportunities and challenges um, for boosting productivity. 
as as they relate to effectively the, the foundations or, or drivers of productivity. Um, so uh, skills, innovation, business environment, um, infrastructure, and and uh, place within that. Um, and I think you know. Places are, are kind of grappling with some of the, the challenges and, and tensions that have been thrown up by uh, the local industrial strategies, and in particular, this idea that they'll need to prioritise for the longer term. Um, and the fact that, that these documents um, aren't meant to be um, bidding documents, mm. uh, but are meant to unlock um, funding uh, further down the line, and, and in particular, unlock the the shared prosperity fund um, so there are challenges in terms of, of of kind of building the evidence base making sure that they're consulting widely with the, the private sector to try and really understand what the barriers to growth are in in the local economy and then prioritize within all of that but also in terms of of thinking about What's, what's going to fund the local industrial strategies. There are big questions about that, given um, that we're, we're awaiting uh, the consultation of the Shared Prosperity Fund. And then, of course, we've got the, the spending review in, in 2019. 2019. Yeah, no worries. And, Paul, I mean, Nomi's talked about the, the local industrial strategy stuff. You know, we've done quite a bit of work in, on uh, the national industrial strategy and advocating for uh, more of a kind of geographical perspective and understanding in order to get at some of these real sort of drivers. Just say something about, you know, that perspective and, you know, what you what we would ideally want to be seeing. And then we'll, we'll talk a little bit more around, you know, so how these different levers play out. Well, interestingly, I think when you look at productivity, which is the, the big challenge, you know, when we have had discussion about domestic policy, it has been around productivity and the industrial strategies is right to, to, to look at that. Um, we hear stats such as, um, you know, the German worker produces in four days what the UK worker produces in five, which is a great soundbite. But of course, that hides all sorts of variation underneath that. And if you start to break that down regionally, um, what you see is that actually worker in the greater southeast of England produces more on a weekly basis than what a German worker does. Mm. And it's, it's other parts of the economy where we see that actually there really is that productivity gap. So if we're thinking about productivity, you know, we've got to think about the geography of this. Um, in the same way that, you know, if we're thinking about Brexit, we've got to think about the, the geography of this. And, and it comes back to this, this challenge, particularly if, if cities elsewhere in, in the country really punching below their weight. You know, having not made that transition from low places of low cost to places of knowledge production. And the question is, why is that? Well, the benefits that high-skilled businesses are looking for, you know, these cities are not offering in the way that they need to be offering to really attract those types of businesses in. And that's where we need to focus. So again, the, the national industrial strategy needs to be thinking about why do businesses locate where they do? And why do particularly high-skilled, what we would call exporting businesses, these footloose businesses, why do they choose to locate in the greater southeast to drive up, which then drives up the, the productivity of the greater southeast? And therefore, what do we need to do to try and emphasise the benefits um, that other places can offer to try and attract the, that type of investment in elsewhere too? Now, that's down to skills, um, that's down to, uh, down to local transport, that's down to the way that uh, their city centres operate. You know, it's all about... How do you get a Sheffield 
Or how do you get a Middlesbrough to be a place where you get this concentration of activity, high-skilled activity in one place, and that drives on the productivity of their areas, and then it has implications in terms of wages in the areas, the amount of money that's in people's pockets, and therefore how they feel about the economic opportunity and what their standards of living look like. No, I mean, you, you've, so just pick up on, on that and take, take that on a little bit further around. Let's just highlight some of the issues and questions around uh, the skills uh, sort of policy area you know what are we seeing what would you know what's the sort of responses that we would ideally uh, like to see in different places well you know we know that skills is one of the most important factors in determining um, economic outcomes both at the kind of individual level and at the the city level as as well as uh, the national level and and as Paul has said um, one of one of the most Um, important reasons why we see um, such uh, kind of spatial variation in terms of economic outcomes is because of of the skills of of the workforce. So, you know, places across the country are thinking very hard about how how they improve the the skills of, of their populations as part of their local industrial strategies. One of the the frustrations is that they don't necessarily have the levers and mechanisms that they need to to try and affect change in in that space. So there's an ongoing conversation um, about kind of devolution in that policy area. Um, And, you know, it will need to be part of of, of the discussion and debate around the devolution um, framework. So, of course... Uh, there's this kind of there's that kind of conversation, and then there's there's what partners can do now to try and um, improve um, uh, kind of skills locally, and and the work that we've done, kind of looking at some of the longer term changes in the economy and what that means for the skills system, shows that actually we need to be starting from the early years. Um, we see quite significant spatial divides between cities when we look at um, kind of rates of achievement in uh, uh, the early years um, and those divides persist if not widen over time. So there's a need to be thinking about um, early years, school performance as as part of the mix in terms of improving um, uh, the kind of skills of of residents. But then, of course, um, you know, uh, the vast majority of people who will be in the workforce in 2030 have already been through compulsory education. So we need to be thinking about adult education and lifelong learning as well um, and how we increase um, participation and improve outcomes in terms of lifelong learning too because you know that, that's, that's been declining over the longer term and we've seen a significant drop in employer investment in workforce development since um, uh, the EU referendum as they're already starting to deal with some of the costs of, of Brexit. So we need to think quite um, carefully um, about the, the kind of best ways to do that um, and there's some good evidence on on the impacts of um, kind of employment training and apprenticeships. But I think um, the the local industrial strategies do offer the opportunity to try and experiment more in this space, so uh, uh, that we get kind of better evidence um, about what works to improve skills. Yeah, uh, and one of the one of the benefits that some uh, allocate to Brexit is that you know as as migration uh, becomes tighter in a sense the numbers 
allowed into the country uh, reduce, that will have some positive effect on businesses in the UK to invest more in their workforce or to, you know, to, to potentially skill up those people that they can no longer get from, from other parts uh, of the European Union or indeed of the globe. Your, your thoughts on that? I mean, is whether that's a, a likely or potential outcome or is that just you know, wishful thinking? I think, you know, that's certainly one of the, the things that's been kind of raised as an opportunity as part of Brexit. But, you know, many businesses aren't investing now. And as I've said, we've seen a significant drop in, in business investment in, in workforce um, development. So, um, you know, I, I think there, there's the chance that Brexit will actually uh, work to reinforce some of the longer running trends in this space, um, which is why it is so important that um, you know government and and local government are focused on 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 ways to try and um, encourage, promote, and support employers to invest more in workforce development and training. The geography of this is very interesting as well, though, because I think if you um, you know. If you look at certain places, particularly in the north of England, you see there's a very large share of people that have no formal qualifications at all. If you then look at the structure of their economies, you know, it, it's reflective of that. You know, a lot of the activity they have is, is pretty low skilled. Now, we don't tend to have seen a great deal of migration into those cities. Our research shows that. And now we used to talk about this earlier as well, about how a lot of um, international migration goes into London and other cities in the greater southeast. So we've got this situation here um, where you know you've got a, perhaps a, a city in the, in the north thing they're not doing very well where uh, migration levels have been pretty low so it's not as if you know so domestic labor is being replaced by by migrants coming from elsewhere um, we've got a lot of people with very few formal qualifications um, but we've got businesses that are pretty low low skill quite routinized in terms of the activities that they do that type of business is not going to invest loads and loads of money in retraining because it doesn't need skilled labor you know, and it's either you've got a person there sort of doing this, this activity over and over again in a routinized manner, or there may well be a machine sort of doing that instead. So as things have stood in the past, there's been very little incentive, I think, for those businesses to invest in people in those places. And um, Brexit, therefore, is not going to change that. You know, even if we do have tighter migration um, um, laws or rules, that's not really going to affect the amount of migration going into, into some of these struggling places because the opportunity isn't there anyway. And that's not going to change the uh, incentives that those businesses face in terms of investing. So particularly in places that have struggled over the last 20 or 30 years, I don't think Brexit's going to have any impact on that, on that incentive for business to invest in their workforce. Yeah, so crudely then, if, if, if skills and education, which we regard as being fundamental, if I could say that, you know, in the sort of conversation about how we help places become more successful in the future, um, I think skills and education is often underappreciated as the, you know, the fundamental factor. You can, you know, people I'm sure out there would debate that, but that's my sense. Uh, an overappreciated or overemphasized, overprioritized uh, intervention is, is in and around transport and infrastructure more generally. You know, in a sense, you hear a lot of conversations about, uh, you know, the future of the Midlands or the northern cities is, you know, is fundamentally held back by uh, transport constraints. And we know that there are and there are pockets of those sorts of things, but it seems to me that that's over-prioritised. Paul, do you give you a reflection on, on that? Yeah, and the other thing I think I would throw in too is sectors. 
You know, I'd love to do some sort of analysis since 2016 um, in this space, be Brexit or industrial strategy. Um, how many times have the words um, sectors and transport been used and how many times have the words skills and education been used? And I'd be absolutely shocked if it wasn't hugely skewed towards uh, transport and, and sectors. I think, um, you know, we haven't mentioned sectors once today because actually I think it's about uh, or the challenge that places face is about attracting investment in investment from a range of different sectors, and that comes down to be able to provide the the workers that um, uh, the workers that those types of uh, sectors are looking for. And again, that just gets overlooked. Instead, we talk about the car industry or talk about another industry because it feels like we can conceptualise that a little bit better. Talk about things in terms of sectors rather than perhaps talk about skills, which is really difficult in terms of having something to, to to address that. And then in terms of transport. And I think it was it was interesting at you know party conferences a couple of months back. It was sort of the answer was transport. Oh no, sorry, the answer was transport between cities. What was the question? That felt like every conversation that we heard in the, the rooms, the many rooms that we went into, um, that seemed to be the direction that it was going. Now, transport is important. Um, we think that transport within cities is much more important than transport with, between cities. And that's principally because you know, commuting is a cost. You know, why would people um, travel longer if they don't have to? The reason why people travel a long way into London is because actually wages in London are dead high, but so is the cost of housing, so people get pushed out. In somewhere you know, around Manchester, around Leeds, you know, not only are the wages not as high as, as we would like, for a whole range of factors that we've discussed already, but actually housing is pretty cheap too. So why would you want to be based on the east side of Leeds and commute into Manchester every day when you could live, say, in Stockport and commute in um, much more quickly and much more efficiently? So we've got to be careful here that you know the Grand Projet is not the um, is not the thing that politicians gravitate towards and say we've got a big problem here and the easy answer is we're going to spend billions of pounds on, on intercity transport because actually that's not the big challenge that that these places face. It is. No broken record time almost, but it is skills, first off, and obviously all the, um, the things that now I'm set out in terms of the detail underneath that. And then if we are talking about transport, it's about transport within city regions, you know, linking people to jobs over a distance that they are willing to commute. That's where we're going to see a big difference. Yeah, Naomi, I mean, you're, in your uh, conversations across the country with in regards to local industrial strategies, I mean, Transport. I mean, where, you know, where is it in the in the scheme of things? Do you sense that there's a a, a prioritisation and over focus or not? I think it's. I mean, it's certainly part of the mix. And you know, there's a lot of conversation about um, at what scale should you be thinking about transport interventions? Mm. Is it right to be thinking at the city region level, or or do we need to be thinking kind of pan city region? So it's certainly part of of the conversation. Um, but. I think, you know, one of the issues is that um, kind of skills alongside things like transport is, is less kind of tangible and, and mm -hmm. visible and and the kind of the benefits from that type of investment tend to, to take a longer time um, to be revealed, um, which is, I think, in part why the kind of uh, transport and infrastructure investments are, are kind of more popular. Mm. Um, but I think it, it matters in terms of the inclusive growth conversation too. You know, I think every... every um, uh, kind of authority that I've spoken to about the local industrial strategies have, has stated how they want um, the, the strategy to be supporting inclusive growth within their area. Of course, skills is a really important part of that. Um, and 
you know, it's it's much easier to see how, uh, you know, investment in education and, and skills is, is going to have direct benefits for residents. It's not always so clear um, how transport is going to um, benefit residents, particularly those living in deprived communities. So, you know, for instance, we know that um, improving transport links from uh, a city centre location to a deprived community works to drive up house prices in that area. There's much less evidence that it does anything to tackle worklessness. So in effect, it might well just be um, raising cost of living for people um, living in that area or worse, pushing them out of that area rather than than doing anything to to benefit them. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great point. I think that's really important. Um, Another area, just get your your reflections on. I mean, I think there's a sense that we've talked about the, the, the sort of economic origins of and the economic implications of uh, of of Brexit, you know, but clearly uh, there, you know, within the Brexit uh, conversations and ultimately the decision, and then the, fall, the you know the fallout, you know, there there is a strong political element, you know, to that as well. Um, and you know, my sense is is that when you we go around the country to different places, yes, there is a sort of economic disenfranchisement you know we we haven't seen the growth of the wages or the jobs that you know maybe other parts have and you know and, and that's something we need addressing but also a sense that there's a political disenfranchisement you know concerns and uh, about West, Westminster and Whitehall a kind of detached elite you know doesn't understand that you know what's going on in these sorts of places and a real disenfranchisement on the decision making side as well as on, on the political side as well as on the on the the economic side and again you know some uh, not least us but some have said you know that brexit offers an opportunity to you know t- to also tackle that political questions about how decisions get made and by whom those decisions get made which kind of leads us towards some questions around um around devolution paul just your your reflections on that you know kind of buy that sort of an argument and you know hopeful that we might be able to unlock some of these problems on the political side yeah i think it's really interesting in terms of where the finger of blame seems to be pointed around um, around sort of lack of political control. I think definitely it feels like, or certainly the things that we hear you know, since the referendum is in part it's been, well, you know, it's, it's bureaucrats making decisions elsewhere and it's one end of the eye for the bureaucrats and we haven't got any say over how we um, run our lives, run our, our political system, how we run our economy in the, in the local area. Um, what is curious is that that's been... Um, Manifested or being sort of communicated through a, a referendum for um, for a European Union membership, and it seems that in part people have said we don't like the EU telling us what to do. We want to take back control. Where exactly we're taking back control to? Though is it Westminster? Is it, is it local? There's a real sort of grey area there. I think what's quite interesting, sort of contrasting that, say, to the to the United States, and particularly, I think, with the political climate there at the moment, where there's very much a feeling that you know Washington has got too much power. Actually, despite there being a great degree of devolution in America, then in, in the UK, um, Washington has got too much power. You know, we don't want you know the federal government telling us what to uh, what to do. You know, we want power back in our uh, back in our area. And indeed, it seems like. Um, that's certainly the rise of sort of Donald Trump style politics is partly being based off the off the back of that. So in America, it's being very much the thing is being pointed at national government. In the UK, it's very much the thing is being pointed at European 
sort of political structures for, for want of a better word and it's and it's sort of it's it's the same feeling it's like we haven't got control locally of things that matter to our lives and we're being pushed around by by bureaucrats who don't understand where where we are uh, or sort of what we need but you know that finger is, is pointed over at brussels rather than being pointed at westminster that then i think poses a very interesting question for bureaucrats and politicians that um that are within Westminster about when some of these powers are repatriated, what are they going to do? Because really what people seem to be saying in part is that we don't like being told what to do by, by people who are disconnected from our lives. Now that um, applies to politicians and, and civil servants in Westminster as much as it does within, within Brussels. But what will politicians do? Because really the message there should be, do you know what, we do need to pass more power down locally. Um, and that's a message I think that is implicitly being sent out, if not explicitly. But of course, there's a political choice there. And uh, while I feel there was the appetite to pass some of that power down, perhaps between 2010 and 2015, it doesn't feel like certainly since the uh, referendum that that appetite is as strong. Um, and I say that's a very grey area. And I think there's still um, a lot that needs to be said around that to clarify. But, you know, we do think that more power should be passed down at the local level to, to both deal with the political issues that you raise, Andrew, but also deal with some of those economic challenges as well. Yeah, Naomi, your, your reflections on, you know, the impact potentially of Brexit on the way the decisions get made and by whom as much as, or as well as, uh, the nature of those decisions themselves. Well, I think, you know, one of the the opportunities that was, was flagged uh, during our work on, on the potential uh, local impacts of, of Brexit was um, the kind of replacement of the EU funds and the opportunity there um, to uh, design and, and, and deliver um, a, a policy uh, in the form of the, the Shared Prosperity Fund um, that gave local uh, and, and kind of city leaders greater flexibility to invest in, in their local economies in, in ways in which uh, really reflected local circumstance. Um, and I think that that still is one of the, the biggest opportunities. Um, uh, but there, you know, obviously we're, we're awaiting the, the consultation on the Shared Prosperity Fund. But I think there is opportunity um, to design and, and distribute that, that funding in a way that um, gives uh, local leaders much much greater flexibility than they've had in in the past, and mm. I think that's a really important part of uh, uh, the kind of devolution agenda going forward. Um, we could carry on kind of talking about uh, Brexit and the implications of it uh, for quite some time, and indeed, I'm sure this won't be the the last time that we have conversations about the fallout and the implications uh, consequences of, of Brexit. But for for now, just as close, but we we'll start with you, Paul. In terms of you know, messages to government and to cities you know, about how to deal with or how to make the most of or, or at least mitigate the, the, the worst of uh, Brexit, what, what are the kind of core messages that we wanna, you would want to get across? Well, the challenge for both national and local government is about trying to attract in um, you know, this high skilled business investment that are going to create um, um, a great number of job opportunities better paid job opportunities in uh, in areas that struggle so that people um, both have access to better quality work, however you define that, but crucially, I think, you know, have more money in their pockets off, off the back of that too. Mm. And it's thinking about what are the fundamental drivers of that and how are we going to design policy to try and improve the benefits that these places offer um, because they have struggled to, to make that offer in the past. 
Um, their economies therefore have struggled and in part you can make an argument that actually the Brexit result is, is, is an outcome of that. Oh, yeah. Big alarm bell being, being sounded by this referendum vote. Let's do something about that. Mm. But it's got to be on those fundamental challenges that we look at, say, rather than perhaps some of the easy answers, which are, oh, it's about sectors or, or it's about, um, about intercity transport. Mm. Naomi, your sort of reflections or, or messages to both national and to, uh, to cities around you know, how, we, how we deal with uh, Brexit? Yeah, well, you know, I think at the moment there's obviously a great deal of uncertainty um, about what Brexit will eventually end up looking like and, and the impacts that it will have. So I think it's really important that that government and um, local partners find ways to monitor the impacts of Brexit as they play out. Um, but I think, as, as Paul says, it, it doesn't really change um, uh, the fundamentals and, and the importance of, of those kind of fundamentals to, to economic development and, and growth. Um, and I think, you know, like I said earlier, um, what Brexit does is put um, kind of more significance on on um, making sure that that interventions are as effective as they possibly can be. Um, so in, in, some, in some senses that means experimenting more with, with interventions and, and policies and evaluating those experiments, um, but also finding ways to share knowledge and, and best practice so that, that policy is, is more effective across the country. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, well, I, I, I completely agree with that in a sense. You know, I think, as you say, both of you have been saying, um, Brexit does create uh, an urgency in the, in a, the nature of the response and how we do it. I think it does increase the, uh, the importance of, of that response, but doesn't actually change the underlying rationale of why we, you know, why we need to do what we're, we're doing. And we should, you know, we should hold to that um, when we're thinking about how the consequences and implications of Brexit plays out in the short term uh, and in the long term. My guests today have been Paul Swinney and Naomi Clayton. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of City Talks brought to you by Centre for Cities. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher by searching Centre for Cities. Please rate, review and subscribe if you liked what you heard. You can also follow the Centre on Twitter at Centre for Cities or like us on Facebook and LinkedIn for the latest updates on what the Centre is up to. If you have any comments on the episode or suggestions for topics we should cover in the future, we'd love to hear from you. Do tweet us or send an email to info at centreforcities.org. The music was from Palace Fires by Johnny Foreigner, used with permission and all rights are reserved. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.